Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. I'm convinced the way one plays chess always reflects the player's personality, said the Russian chess grandmaster Vladimir Kramnik. If something defines their character then it will also define their way of playing. So maybe, just throwing this out there, the way to know the true character of a politician is to play chess against them. Because it just so happens that one of the biggest names in British politics at the moment is a former child chess champion. Sometimes I had to move my pieces around a couple of times, wait for you to do something that created vulnerabilities and then swoop in. Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, could well be running the country with Keir Starmer this time next year. And I say running the country with, because they're a double act. There's no way of understanding Keir Starmer's labour, its strategy, its path back to power, or so it hopes, without understanding her. She spells out the politics, the options, the pros and cons, and he picks. And of the two players in this double act, Rachel Reeves is the more political one. Not the competent lawyer who chose politics as a second career, like Keir Starmer, but the woman who has been living and breathing Labour politics since she was a girl. The woman with definite ideas about how to run an economy and how to run a country, who's written books, studied the history, and who now finds herself within touching distance of Downing Street. So, let me take you back to South London of the 80s and through the life and times of a proud childhood chess champion. You know, I probably was a bit of a geek at school. Well, I was, yeah. Oxford student politician. Naively expected that when I went to the Labour Club, I'd find lots of people who were very supportive of the Labour government, but that wasn't uh, entirely the the case, I think it's fair to say. From her doomed days at HBOS during the banking crisis to her, well, equally doomed days in Ed Miliband's shadow cabinet. Myself and others were scarred by that election. From Politico, I'm Alva Ray. And this week on Westminster Insider, I'm taking you to meet Rachel Reeves, the woman who hopes to be the UK's first female chancellor. So while Boris Johnson is up against the Privileges Committee, probably only several hundred metres away, we are here in a much quieter corner of Parliament in the beautiful ornate rooms of the Speaker's House for an afternoon of chess. The UK champion is playing the Ukrainian champion. 
there's the annual House of Lords versus House of Commons match and just over on one side surrounded by a crowd of people watching her every move is of course Rachel Reeves the Shadow Chancellor who is defending her title as the reigning champion of this competition lots of familiar faces here including Dominic Lawson the columnist fresh from reminding Rachel about the last time he played chess against her I remember it very well because at some point she made an error and under her breath uttered a four-letter word, which I don't think the BBC microphones picked up, but I certainly heard it at the board. But I reassure you, it began with S. It was very funny to me because I could see just how much she wanted to win. <laughs> so I would say she's very competitive and probably very methodical. And I think sort of the chess mind does suit that kind of approach, which is to analyse things quite carefully. I remember once she was criticised for being boring, snoring or whatever. So when people are like that, they're often accused of being boring. But I don't think that's necessarily a fault at all. So you just won? Uh, I did, yes, uh, against Lord Hogan Howe. We've got to see you absolutely delighted smile on your face. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like getting the better of uh, a minister in a debate. Uh, I enjoy playing chess, uh, enjoy winning at chess. So there was talk of a gentle few minutes of chess against Rachel before we started the interview. And I had grand plans to end it early by exclaiming, checkmate, and then only joking. But then there I was, ushered into another grand room with one chess set right in the middle to the table where the Ukrainian and UK grandmasters had just been playing. Trying to be white. Yeah, thank you. a slight advantage. So... We sat down to play, and soon enough there were about 30 politicians, chess champions, professional chess players, grandmasters, all standing around in silence, arms folded, to watch me play Rachel Reeves at chess. (laughs) Rachel Reeves just took my rook. (laughs) I have never gone so red. Check. 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 (laughs) Very good. It took me longer than I should have done. Very good. We've edited it down brutally, but to be clear, for my own pride, I hung on in there for ten minutes. I felt like I had a small insight into the scrutiny Rachel Reeves is now under all the time as a frontline politician. It was just a casual chess match, but so inexplicably intense with so many eyes burning onto the back of us. I felt so self-conscious with people watching. Oh, yeah. Mostly men, dare Mostly I men. say. Yeah, yeah. With oh, their arms, yeah. arms crossed, yeah. watching us. I couldn't believe that two women were playing a game of chess. Well done, us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you feel self-conscious in moments like that ever? When I play chess, I block everything else out. So I only look at the board. I don't look at the person I'm playing. I certainly don't look around me because then you lose your concentration and, you know, for however long the game lasts, I just focus entirely on that. I heard, though, that that took me longer than it should have when you finished. (laughs) 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 Well, I mean, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I I should have uh, bish-bashed a bit quicker through that game, I felt. But uh, it was my third game of the mm-hmm. afternoon, so maybe I was uh, getting a bit sluggish. Uh, I am quite competitive, but I am very focused, very focused when I play chess, mm. very focused with mm. most things that I do. 
what are the obvious parallels with how you approach a game of chess with how you approach politics? So, I mean, look, in, in chess, you've got to know what you're trying to achieve. I, I basically decided that my combination of my queen, my bishop and my knight were going to checkmate your king. And I really wasn't that bothered that, about what you were doing so much. I know you had that attacking bishop, but I thought I'll just let her do what she likes with that. And she's going to run out of uh, moves um, with that bishop. And I'm just going to go for for that. So I'm, that was my strategy to checkmate with you with those three pieces. And then... Everything else then was sort of tactical. Uh, sort of, sometimes I had to move my pieces around a couple of times, wait for you to do something that created vulnerabilities, and then swoop in. So you, know, you need to know where you're going and what you're trying to achieve, and then just sort of stay focused on that goal. I, I'm a more attacking player than I am defensive, so I probably, to be honest, I probably should have worried about your bishop a bit more than um, I was. But I quite like just to go for the attack and, and, and hope it pays off. On some council estates, there are three houses and four where there is no wage earner. The ladies not for turning. We're very concerned about unemployment because our jobs are constantly under threat. Socialists don't like ordinary people choosing, for they might not choose socialism. Rachel Reeves grew up in Thatcher's Britain. She was born in Lewisham, South London, in 1979 the academic, conscientious oldest daughter of teachers. She went to state schools, won her first chess tournament at the age of seven and became a national champion at 14. And I get the impression the young Rachel Reeves was a force to be reckoned with. There was this one time and I had gone round to my grandma and granddad's house after school and they had a copy of the Evening Standard. My granddad must have bought it home or something. And it had this sort of feature about this um, mum and dad who were complaining that their uh, daughter hadn't got into any of the schools that they'd put on the list um, when they applied for secondary school. And so they'd been allocated Cater Park, which was my school. And they were saying, you know, it was a failing school. It was a disaster for their daughter. And I thought, it's just not fair, because that's not an accurate reflection of my school and the teachers um, there who are working really hard. So um, I got out pen and paper and I wrote a letter to the Evening Standard. I guess in those days I must must have had to send it, because I was about 14, I think. And then I must have then gone and bought the Evening Standard, because it wasn't free then. So I must have gone and bought it the next couple of days, and the letter wasn't in, which I wasn't very happy about. So I then phoned up the Evening Standard and the lady I spoke to said, well, we get a lot of letters, we simply cannot publish them all. And I said, if my letter is not in your newspaper tomorrow, I will get every parent and every teacher at my school to write in. I'm not sure if I would have achieved that. Uh, And the next day, my letter, in slightly shorter form, was published in the newspaper. And uh, yeah, I think my teachers were really impressed with me (laughs) because they didn't know I'd done this or anything. Um... But, yeah, I felt I had my little right of reply to this journalist and this family who were so anti my secondary school. I love this. I get this impression of, of like, a a really quite determined young person. Um, Your sister has also talked about you setting her extra homework. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, at a primary school it was sort of history, but at secondary school I was not very impressed with um, Ellie's maths, and so I, um, I set her extra maths work. She got an A in GCSE maths, which is a miracle because she was not very good at it at all. So I like to say that was another A for me in my (laughs) 
<laughs> my GCSEs. But no, I, I did. I was a bit, um, I must have been quite annoying. But yes, I used to set her extra uh, homework and, and market for her. But there's so, there's so many things like this because you did extra GCSEs and then apparently you set the SATs sort of for fun to see how you were doing them. Well, so this is a sort of a, a conflict between my academic Rachel and political Rachel. So political Rachel wanted to boycott the SATs because that's what my mum and dad believed. They didn't believe in the SATs, um, that um, children should not be doing these tests age 14 or however old we were. And so I boycotted them with some other um, children at school. But on the other hand, academic Rachel wanted to know how she would have done in the SATs. So after boycotting them, I then did them in my lunch break (laughs) Um, outside the teacher's staff room, where I went every lunchtime until I had completed them. I always think discovering what politicians were like as children really does give you a little insight into their deeper personality. And Rachel, as you can hear, is pretty upfront about her geeky childhood. You know, I probably was a bit of a geek at school. Well, I was, yeah. But I wasn't going to be deterred and to stop doing something. I didn't feel like I had to, you know, go along with what everyone else did, I guess. I'm just wondering, at that age, what did you think you were out to achieve? Um, like, Did you already have a sense of where you wanted to be going? I wanted to going? do as well as I could. And I didn't know what that meant, but I wanted to do as well as I could. And I have always had this thing about feeling a need to prove myself. And I think that some of that came from chess and from the school I went to, because there was a lot of snobbery at chess about girls, about there was a sort of quite a lot of misogyny um, about what girls could achieve. And there was also a sort of snobbery about schools like mine, because most of the children that played chess were you know, boys who went to fee-paying schools. And I just felt I was just as good as them, and I was going to prove it. But I do remember a a time the father of another chess player asked me what I got in my GCSEs, and I told him, and he actually said to me, oh, so some girls do do well at Cater Park. I just, I won't say what I thought. But I was so angry, because it was just like, I knew that's what they thought about me, and I knew that's what I thought about my school. And it just made me so angry. Why shouldn't you, if you're from an ordinary background, do well at school and work hard? You know, you don't have to be a boy at a fee-paying school to achieve and get on in life, but that's what they all thought, and I wanted to prove that that wasn't the case. So encountering these sorts of people at chess tournaments and things was a bit of grit in the oyster? Yes, it was, and I think also it did um, widen my horizons it gave me a better idea of the things that were out there and available um, to me because just because I was the top of my class or top of my school didn't mean that there weren't lots of other really bright, competitive kids out there and I wanted to be as good as them, not just, you know, good at, at my secondary school. But also, I was the third person from my school to go to um, Oxbridge And it wasn't until I was in year 11 doing my GCSEs that anyone from my school had got into Oxford. But I did meet people at chess who were applying to Oxford and I didn't know anything about um, those universities and the college system and all the rest of it. But I started hearing stuff about it and I thought, I would like to do that. So um, 
I hadn't realised this before, but listening to the... I don't know if you listened to it, um, the profile of you on Radio 4 that was on recently. I, I did listen to it, but in part because I didn't know who they had actually interviewed yeah, and who own. was going to be on it. <laughs> they got your dad... Well, yeah, yeah, my dad did tell me, so I didn't know my dad was going to be on it. <laughs> but um, they mentioned in sort of in passing that your parents split up, which I hadn't realised before, around that time. And I just wonder if behind the scenes, you talked a lot about sort of the being quite driven and at school, but behind the scenes, was there actually just quite a lot of change for you in your home life? Of course there was change because they split up and they were in different houses. But um, my mum and dad were, they were always absolutely put Ellie and me first. And, you know, they'd always go to parents' evenings together. I think some people wouldn't have even known they were divorced. So, you know, they split up, but I didn't feel like... No, I certainly didn't grow up in a single-parent family. My yeah. mum and dad both, you know, saw us regularly and, uh, you know, were very supportive parents. So um, I'm just wondering, at what point did you become political then? You mentioned boycotting the SATs. <laughs> there was an early clue. But at what point did you sort of become aware of, of your politics? Um, earlier than that. So in 1987, when I was eight, it was the general election, and children at school were talking about who their parents were voting for and they all seemed to know about this election I had no idea what they were talking about and felt really embarrassed uh, and so I went home and um, I went to my dad's house and my, uh, I asked my dad about the election and he put on the six o'clock news and he said that's Neil Kinnock and that's who we vote for so my dad later well, I told this story when I first got elected and my dad said um, uh, I can't believe that is true, Rachel. And I said, well, what do you mean, Dad? You definitely voted for Neil Kinnock. You're, you know, sort of Labour lefty sort of guy. And he said, well, if it is true, it's the first time you've done anything that I've told you to do. <laughs> I first interviewed Rachel Reeves one evening in lockdown over Zoom. And it's an experience I'll never forget. She was relaxed at home and she opened up in a way I haven't heard much before or since. She told me about her grandparents who moved from Swansea to Kettering in the 1930s to find work in the shoe factories and about how her granny had breathing problems because it was her job to untie rope and turn it into shoelaces and she had poor health for the rest of her life from inhaling the glue. She told me the Labour Party was formed by people like them and for people like them. It's got to be the voice for those people. It may be Rachel Reeves' dad who first told her to vote Labour, but these days I get the impression that it's a very emotional, almost sentimentalised idea of her working-class grandparents that drives and really underpins her politics. You joined the Labour Party when you were... 17 yep. and then you got into Oxford like all the people at Chess had been talking about they what... didn't all get in <laughs> <laughs> um, what were you like at Oxford then? to be honest I wasn't totally sure whether I would fit in but I made really good friends I did a bit of politics not a huge amount I wasn't massively into student politics 
that's not my impression of you because from my time profiling other politicians who were around Oxford at the same time as you, you often come up in conversation. People remember you from our Zoom meetings, oh, right. being being a very confident speaker. And I find your manifesto for Labour. Oh, I, I have right. it. I have it on the laptop. Oh, God, no, you're right. <laughs> There wasn't anything embarrassing in it. Actually, it was just promising more socials and, oh, right, and more speaker events. <laughs> So, Not revolution, I wasn't promising that. Um, but yeah, nothing nothing to embarrass your, your current self. But um, from, from also being at Oxford, I feel like Oxford student politics, even if you say you weren't that involved in it, that, was, that to me, never having been in it, it looked like a bear pit, quite intense 18-year-olds who already knew that they wanted to be in politics one day. Did you feel like you were in a sort of training ground for the real thing in a way? I guess the reason I wasn't so keen on student politics was I felt like all of us at Oxford were already very privileged just by virtue of being there. And some people at Oxford obviously were really very privileged indeed. And I felt like sort of the causes I wanted to champion were about, you know, tackling inequalities. And I wasn't sure whether student politics really was the way to to do that. Maybe that's not fair and you know a lot of people I know were very active in in student politics more than I was um but it wasn't my sort of politics I preferred constituency Labour Party meetings to the University Labour Club. And did you always have the kind of same type of Labour politics that you do now or were you further to the left when you were younger? I only really ask because I know colleagues of yours who now broadly are in the same position someone like Wes Streeting he was way to the left when he was growing up and sort of moved at that time, were your politics broadly the same? Yes, I was New Labour. I turned 18 when Tony Blair became Prime Minister. I'd grown up my whole um, uh, childhood under Conservative governments. I wanted a Labour government and I wanted a Labour party that was electable. And I saw in Tony Blair and, and Gordon Brown those politicians that were going to change things. And so I was always very supportive of what they were doing and the difference that they made because, again, you know, take my secondary school. Uh, we had been campaigning for a new school building at our secondary school, but we didn't get it under the Conservative government. About a year and a half after I left secondary school, we had a new school building. You know, schools were rebuilt, refurbished under the last Labour government. All of the things that I, you know, cared hugely about, about young people from all different backgrounds having a decent start in life, that's what I felt... Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were really championing and, and that was really important to me and I was very, very supportive of that. Did you find that other students at the time were less so? I don't know when it, when it would maybe change, but I suppose the way student politics is, when Tony Blair was actually in government, I think it was more people enjoying criticising what the government was doing. Yes, Did I you? sort of naively expected that when I went to the Labour Club, I'd find lots of people who were very supportive of the Labour government, but that wasn't uh, entirely the, the case, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, so even then you were sort of having to make the case for your own politics. Yes, and right? I wouldn't be easily, um, you know, swayed. I, I, you know, I, I very much knew what I thought uh, and, uh, and, and wanted to be supportive of, of, of the Labour government. Reeves graduated from Oxford in the year 2000 with two job offers, one from Goldman Sachs, one from the Bank of England. And as she has said in many interviews in the past, she turned down the one offering a lot more money to go off and do something a bit more useful. It meant she was in the Bank of England in the boom years, right before the global financial crisis. 
did it feel like it was a bubble that was maybe going to burst? Well, there was definitely uh, talk about, you know, housing price bubbles, but... Because the economy was growing and the incomes were rising, you know, higher pr- house prices were sort of affordable to, uh, to to people. Although, you know, there were obviously, you know, um, emerging problems, uh, I, I guess. Um, but it was a good time for the economy, you know, business creation, uh, people lifted out of poverty. A strong economy meant money for public services. So the rebuilding of schools and hospitals was, was funded by uh, economic growth. So it, it was a... Yeah, it was a it was it was a good time for the for the economy and for the, for the British economy and and for families. I, I feel like someone who you know is no expert on economics. Hearing that might think, but then you know that that ended in a bust. No, nobody expected, you know, banks to collapse in the way that they that they did. Um, but I, I'm not sure it was because of you know monetary policy or fiscal policy. There should have been tighter banking regulation. Um, but very few people, I think, saw coming what happened. While she was at the Bank of England, she was seconded to the British Embassy in Washington for a year and a half. I was the second economic secretary at the embassy, so quite junior um, at, at the time. And my job was to report back on what was happening in the US economy to UK policymakers at the bank, at the Treasury and, and other uh, economic institutions in the UK. I also you know, had the privilege of facilitating visits for, uh, for politicians and also for Bank of England officials when they came over to Washington and New York. So it was a fantastic um, opportunity for me. It was a, a very, very difficult time because it was just after 9-11. That was a difficult time sort of in, in geopolitics. But am I right in thinking that must have been quite a nice time for you personally because that was when you met your husband? Uh, well, he, he was working, uh, he was on comment from the Treasury to the International Monetary Fund. So, yeah, but we, we met in Washington. The husband in question is Nick Joycey, now Director General of the Cabinet Office's Economic and Domestic Secretariat, which basically means he's one of the most senior civil servants in the country, tasked with ensuring the Prime Minister's priorities are delivered by the system. Which could be pretty interesting, and almost unprecedented as a setup, if or when Rachel Reeves enters number 11. But that's not the only interesting family connection. Rachel Reeves' family is a Labour family, basically a dynasty. Her sister, Ellie, is a shadow minister, and her brother-in-law, John Cryer, is a Labour MP and chair of the PLP, which is the Parliamentary Labour Party. Between that and the senior civil servant husband, we can only imagine what Sunday roasts in that family are like. Anyway, Reeves's next job was even more dramatic. She worked at the UK banking giant HBOS, just as it started to collapse in 2008. I mean, I remember you know, having you know, emails and presentations um, from the, the, the senior leadership, the chief executive, etc., of, of the bank, saying, you know, this is a strong bank, there were rights issues, staff were encouraged to, uh, to buy shares in, in the bank, and the whole house of cards was collapsing. And there was this thing of working... I worked in Halifax for HBOS, and there was a real sense of pride in working for the Halifax. That's what people called it. They didn't call it HBOS. 
former building society that became that demutualized and then merged uh, to, to form HBOS, obviously now part of Lloyd's Banking Group. But there was a real pride of working for, um, for, for, for the Halifax. And that all collapsed. And people were ashamed to say where they worked because they knew that the Halifax, like other banks and uh, uh, etc., were causing all these huge problems in the economy and were having to be bailed out. Did, did you feel that way? Yes, but I didn't feel it to the same extent because I hadn't been there that long. And I didn't feel that same sort of attachment to either place or institution but you really felt it amongst colleagues. A lot of people, it's the only place they'd ever worked. It was where they were from. They might have had other family working for the same bank, and they lived there as well. And that sort of sense of pride just evaporated, and people just could not understand what was going on. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it was very sad, but obviously the consequences on the wider economy were... Yeah, immense, and we're still paying for you know for for for, for some of this the, the bailout etc. But throughout Rachel Reeves's banking career, she always had an eye on the eventual career she wanted in politics. I know lots of Tory women MPs have really bad stories about selections. Was that your experience, or how was that? So the, the Labour Party. Um, I think in 1992 introduced women only shortlists for the first time. So my selection, look, there's look, if we're honest, there were a lot of men in Leeds Labour Party who certainly thought that it was, you know, terribly unfair that um they weren't going to get a, a look in, in in this seat, but you know, for for 40 years women hadn't had a look in. So I think it was right. And the problem is, you see, without all women shortlists people's idea of what an MP looks like and the sort of MP that they like want they think about MPs in the past who have been good who they've known and the problem is there were never never any women role models and so if it had been an open selection I'm not sure if I would have selected a woman because they would have looked for someone like my predecessor or someone like Dennis Healy or Hugh Gateskill or um, you know one of the other great Leeds MPs You see I wonder if that's also a little bit of the thinking around what a leader looks like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that people think well this person looks like a leader looks like the next prime minister because it's so often men mm. you've you know we when we did our last interview we you know we had a really lovely chat about the history of women in the labor party and the books you've written on that i just wonder is that part of why labor has never had a female leader it's part of that what you were just describing, people just not knowing what that might look like. Yeah, I'm sure that is, you know, part of um, that is part of it. And look, I really hope that we do have a, a, a woman leader. I, I will be though, the, if Labour win the next election, the first female Chancellor of the Exchequer. And there's never been a woman in the 800 and something years of having chancellors. They've always been men. And certainly when you, you think about what a senior economist uh, or, or, or banker looks like, it's probably not like me. Nicely dodged there, Rachel. We'll have more from her on Labour's strategy, lessons from chaos with Ed Miliband, and whether she's ever kissed a Tory after the break. Stay with us. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Rachel Reeves was earmarked as a rising star in the Labour Party from the moment she was elected in 2010 as the MP for Leeds West. She was on every list of politicians to watch. If you look back at papers from the time, they're quite excited about this former Bank of England economist, Oxford PPEist and child chess champion. And when she went out for some piri-piri chicken with four of her colleagues, they were so young and promising, they were dubbed the Nando's Five. One evening when uh, when we didn't have a vote, we went out to Nando's and uh, one of us made the mistake of tweeting it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it shows some fiscal responsibility as well. Uh, it was our own money, but it's it was good tape. value. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> we enjoyed our chicken and sweet corn. She was Labour's bright star, as one paper dubbed her. One of the party's hopes for a return to government after they lost under Gordon Brown. Within six months, she was a frontbencher. Would you like to be Chancellor yourself one day? I would very much like to be Chief Secretary of the Treasury because <laughs> I can say all these things at the moment about what we would do and how we will criticise the budget, but I would much prefer to be inside the Treasury actually being able to make a difference. A year after that, she was in Ed Miliband's Shadow Cabinet as Shadow Work and Pension Secretary. You might remember that it was in that job that Rachel Reeves first stirred up controversy within Labour. Her brief from Ed Miliband was to take a tough line on benefits, which she did. We don't want to be seen as, and we're not, the party to represent those who are out of work, she said in one interview. Another time she, famously, said that Labour would be tougher than the Tories on benefits. For years afterwards, it was still coming up as a source of huge anger from the left of the Labour Party, who described Rachel as a red Tory. She describes those years from 2010 to 2015 as a whirlwind. From speech to speech, policy intervention to policy intervention, she thought she was on a conveyor belt. Destination, government. But that wasn't how it happened. Even on the night... Ed Miliband and his team thought they were heading into Downing Street. But here it is, 10 o'clock, and we are saying the Conservatives are the largest party. If this exit poll is right, Andrew, I will publicly eat my hat on your programme. You're puzzled, I'm puzzled. This is not the speech I wanted to give today. 
because I believed that Britain needed a Labour government. I still do, but the public voted otherwise last night. In 2015, I felt that, that Labour could win. We, we thought that the collapse of the Lib Dem vote would benefit Labour, and we were wrong about that. Yes, obviously, myself and others were, were, were scarred by that election and the, you know, the expectations that built up around it, but I haven't felt as confident as I do now about Labour's chances, but I think I'm more... Um, a more realistic um, confidence. I think maybe I was slightly naive in, in 2015 that in a term we could turn around that election defeat and turn it into uh, victory. Um, I do feel more confident now and more clear about what Labour needs to do to win, but it's still a, a, a massive challenge to come from where we were in 2019, our worst defeats since 1935 to forming a majority uh, government but that is what we are working you know incredibly hard to to do are you at all a little bit haunted by the 2015 defeat like the people who were in the shadow cabinet at the time you know ed and myself and event of course you know we all remember uh, where we were when those exit polls came out in uh, in in 2015 and it was a real shock you know we also I think in a different situation in Scotland to what we had in, in 2015. 2015, of course, was the election where we lost all but one seat in, in Scotland. And under Anna Sawa's leadership in, in Scotland, I think that uh, we are reviving and that, and that gives us opportunities and a, a way to um, a Labour majority. Jeremy Corbyn was, of course, elected Labour leader in 2015. While friends of Rachel's left the Labour Party under Corbyn's leadership, she proudly says she was too Labour to leave. But she also, unlike Keir Starmer, made it clear she wouldn't serve in Corbyn's shadow cabinet and went to the backbenches. But this is a woman who believes in not wasting a moment. Just like the little girl picking up extra GCSEs and sitting the sats for fun, she filled those wilderness years to the brim writing economics pamphlets and a book on women in Westminster and chairing the Business Select Committee. She would lead the inquiry into the collapse of Carillion, which held over 400 public sector contracts. The collapse left thousands without jobs, tens of thousands more without the pensions that they were entitled to, and thousands of debts to creditors unpaid. And it was the taxpayer who picked up the bill. All of you sitting here multi-millions of pounds worth of payment from the company over a period of years. And you say how sad and disappointed you are. She uncovered what she described then as stunning corporate greed and mismanagement, enabled by a system obsessed with privatisation and short-term profit. It made her angry. Why don't you give some money back? And it would become the most politically formative period of her life. Two election defeats later, Keir Starmer was elected Labour leader in 2020 and Rachel Reeves returned to the Shadow Cabinet as Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, a sort of all-purpose role shadowing Michael Gove. But after a few months, there were rumbles in the Sunday papers and around the corridors of power that Annalisa Dodds wasn't really working out as Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer. And it was Rachel Reeves' name that was frequently thrown into the mix. 
Working at the New Statesman at the time, I was obsessed with covering Rachel's manoeuvrings to become one of Keir Starmer's closest confidants and eventually his shadow chancellor. Her role shadowing Michael Gove got bigger and bigger. I began to understand that she had Keir Starmer's ear. He asked her for advice and he had asked her to look into election preparation and strategy planning. She started covering bits of economic policy, like outsourcing, as part of her brief. And she gave me that interview in February 2021, in which it already felt like she was one of the key power brokers in Starmer's labour. She never said so explicitly, but it felt a little like her pitch for Shadow Chancellor. And two months later, she got the job. In the time since, she's been credited with restoring Labour's reputation for fiscal responsibility. Because, as she and her allies will frequently remind you, Labour has only ever won when it polls better than the Tories on economic credibility. And they're still haunted by the public perception that they blew up the public finances the last time they were in office. So Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer are trying to knock us over the head with the message that they will be responsible custodians of the public purse. But it means that there's some frustration among Shadow Cabinet colleagues that the approach is cautious and prevents some bold, exciting policy commitments. So you're hoping that you'll be, you know, in number 11 soon enough and almost a running joke among shadow cabinet colleagues is is no uncosted spending pledges and does that risk not being radical enough for all of the changes that the country's facing well i think you could be both radical and credible and i'm absolutely determined that labor will be the party of, of sound money and provide the rock of economic and financial stability that our country uh, needs because, you know, there's nothing progressive about, um, you know, crashing the uh, economy and there's nothing progressive about making promises that you can't keep and I know how important it is that Labour are seen to be economically and and financially um, credible and competent and, you know... I said when I became Shadow Chancellor, I'm more than happy to take on the Tories when it comes to economic competence because I know we can win. And, you know, almost two years in, we are winning those arguments, but only through the, the discipline um, that, that Kira and, and me and the whole Shadow Cabinet are um, e- exhibiting. But look, it doesn't mean you can't do anything because politics is about choices. So, for example... I've been saying for 14, 15 months now that there should be a proper windfall tax on the big profits that the energy giants are uh, making. That's a choice that the Conservatives are not willing to make. We would use that money to help people with the cost of living crisis and it would bring in £10 billion. But, for example, um, childcare, like Labour did make that part of the, you know, put that on the agenda as a political priority. But then when the Chancellor actually announced something on it in the budget, you weren't able to say that you had your own fully costed plan ready to go and does it does actually this approach of making sure everything's robustly costed and so on does that mean that actually you get caught out sometimes you can't be one step ahead of your opponent well i think that people know that the one of the reasons why jeremy hunt did that announcement on childcare is because labor was making the running on childcare and i think at the next election childcare will be a really important um political debate who's got the best plans for for families 
you know, we will ahead of the next election set out um, our plans in a whole range of policy areas. But it's important that we get that right and use that opposition time to make sure that we have policies that are going to work and, and, and be credible. But I think the sort of main response on the childcare stuff to what Hunt said last week was. You've had 13 years and you've just announced a childcare package that will not be fully rolled out for another three and a half years. Uh, and, you know, look, I think we'll, we'll have a debate at the next election about whose childcare offer is, 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 is better and, and, and we'll set that out, but in our own time ahead of the election. So Rachel Reeves is playing a long game. She's decided what the strategy is, she's sticking to it and ignoring what the opponent is doing. A bit like me and my bishop. Although she said herself, that was a bit of a risk. To be honest, I probably should have worried about your bishop a bit more than I was, but I'd quite like just to go for the attack and and hope it pays off. Here in Westminster, there's a feeling of almost inevitability to Labour winning the next election. Even the way people interacted with Rachel Reeves at that chess tournament, the crowds around her, the reverence she's shown, the eyes always watching her, even the whole process of organising this interview, is like she's already the next Chancellor. But while that might be what the Westminster bubble has mostly decided, or what the polls suggest, it doesn't feel at all guaranteed for someone who's come so close so many times before. I definitely don't think there's anything inevitable about Labour winning the next election. I've fought for elections um, as the MP for Leeds West, and although I have been successfully returned to all of them, uh, Labour has lost each of those elections. And at the last election, it was our worst defeat since 1935. The the scale of what we need to achieve at the next election is is huge. It's not insurmountable, though, and we're certainly moving in the right direction, doing um, uh, all the right things. But there's no complacency from any of us in the in the shadow cabinet about the scale of the, of the challenge. I couldn't let Rachel go without asking her one more question. The question all Labour politicians have to answer at some point. Keir Starmer has already said his answer, and I decided it was her turn. But please forgive me, because it's quite cringe. I mean, I'm lowering the tone slightly, but there's a classic question... I don't know if you've ever been asked before, have you ever kissed a Tory? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure I have. Uh, unlike maybe some of my colleagues, I don't go around voter IDing people. Uh. But actually, guess what? There's a serious point here too. I don't think we need to be quite so tribal, you know, in politics and in life. I think that it's good to be challenged politically, you know, even you know within your own side or, you know, across the house. It makes you sharper, makes you clear about what you believe and it strengthens your own arguments I think if you're challenged but also just because you're in a different political party doesn't mean that you can't find common cause on issues and there are conservative MPs and former MPs that I admire and that I count as friends. I knew it would annoy her but I wanted to see how she would react and sure enough as some slight annoyance flashed across her face I thought that was one of the most candid Rachel Reeves moments of the interview. It's that strain of thinking on the left, that purity or tribalism, as she puts it, that really annoys her and that has hurt her in the past. She would much rather stick to chess. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Alva Ray. If you've enjoyed it, as ever, we really appreciate love on social media, as well as nice reviews and ratings. 
And don't forget, you can go back and listen to past episodes, including Jack's dinner with Rachel Reeves' Labour colleague, Wes Streeting. My producer this week was Eve Streeter of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back next week. See you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.